Well, I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning. I'd like to invite you to join me in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3. We began our series, summer series rather, in Judges last week and studied the first two chapters which have to do with an introduction of sorts to the remainder of the book. And we discussed how other than Samson and Gideon, there probably isn't a lot of preaching or sermons from the book of Judges uh, that you may have heard even if you attend church frequently because perhaps of the bizarre material that we find in the book of Judges. But we've chosen to look at this and to study it, to ask questions of it, to learn from it, uh, knowing that it is the darkest part of Israel's history. Uh, if only for the purpose of making that light of the world that we're studying in the book of John shine more brightly against that dark backdrop. Uh, I had heard in my study preparing for this what I thought was, was funny. Uh, one fellow had said that most preachers are like the author to the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews 11. That's the, the hall of faith chapter. There's that somewhere around verse 30, 32, somewhere in there where he says, what shall I say? For I have not time to talk of Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. He's talking about the judges. Most pastors don't have time and they're preaching from one to the other to get to these things. But we'll do this for the summer. And uh, I think today should be interesting. Let me first, before we read, give you an, a, a snapshot or a heads up as to what we should find in the contents of chapter 3. There are four separate sections, some larger than the other. But in the first six verses, we're going to read somewhat of a setup, but sounds a lot like a test. We'll read that word, test, at least twice. And then the last few verses, four and five, are going to give what amounts to a report card to see if Israel had passed their test. Then we're going to be introduced to Othniel, the first judge, in verses 7 through 11. And we'll see a case study of a cycle that's going to be repeated in Judges over and over and over again. Then we get to verse 12 through 30, we read the story of Ehud. And uh, he's best described as an assassin with a homemade dagger that he wore on his right side. We'll learn what that's all about. And then the last one, just one verse, verse 31, is the judge Shamgar and how his use of a farm implement slash weapon of mass destruction is responsible for 600 deaths. And then at the end, we'll try to figure out, all right, what do we do with this? So let's start reading. Uh, actually, we'll back up to read the last verse of chapter 2. And then on through, let's say, the first six verses of Judges 3, and we'll pray and ask the Lord's help with this. Verse 23 of chapter 2, So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Verse 1 of chapter 3 opens, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Cana. For it was in order that the generations of people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. 
These are those nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in the mountain of Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the pleasure that's ours, the opportunity, the blessing to study this old book, to ask questions of it, to learn from it, to see you at work in it. We ask that you help us understand what we're reading, and then we ask that you help us obey what it commands. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, the word testing is mentioned twice in what we just read. And that gives us a nod as to what the author is intending to explain. And uh, it seems that the test has been given to Israel. And this is really reiterating material that we learned in chapters 1 and 2. The Israelites had strayed from God. They had begun to serve other gods. They were taking on the characteristics of those they spent time with. The Canaanites who were in the promised land that they were told to drive out. And we spent some time and we will later talking about the justification for such a thing. And is this some type of holy war? And what sense do we make of things like that? But for this morning we're going to take the... Bible at its word and that this is God's command to them against a people who he had promised to punish who had not turned from their ways as the story tells us. This test however has to do with the fidelity of Israel to its God. He had brought them out of the land of Egypt and had promised them this land but they had not followed directions as he had given them. So the twice or the two different times we see testing mentioned in these first six verses. The first is up early, and it has to do with uh, the idea of knowing war as far as the people who did not know war. And then secondly, down toward the end, the testing is in connection with uh, whether or not Israel would obey the commandments that the Lord had given to their fathers. So, We could ask the question, well, what is being tested here? Is it proficiency in warfare or is it proficiency in obedience? Uh, First thing you ask as a college student, uh, is that going to be on the test? And and you got to figure out how your professor is teaching and what he considers important enough to test you on. You want to be able to pass the test. Well, Israel miserably fails this test. And what we'll have to do to understand what is being said here is not so much think of this in terms of God giving a test as if he, the professor, needs to know the proficiency of those he's testing. He knows everything. He knows their hearts better than they know them. He knows they have strayed. It's not as if he's asking questions in order to get answers. He knows the answers. 
So this test is for the purpose of the one being tested. And it clearly says he left them there so that they would learn these things. And if you're getting, getting technical with, with what this is, God, through leaving these people here, which would amount to warfare, which is something that we would want to certainly avoid, God is giving his people an objective instrument that will reveal to them, because God already knows, the extent of their infidelity with him. Wouldn't you say that your own temptation, especially the ones you give into, are, are rather good at showing you in, in a tangible way uh, the wedge that might be between you and your God in heaven? Uh, I, I think it speaks very loudly and points to the fact that we're not in need of a Savior only for heaven, but in need of a Savior to just get from one day to the next and look like a child of God. That, I think, is what is being taught here, that these people have a problem they can't just wash off. They're stuck in this cycle that we'll see demonstrated here in a moment. But put another way, it seems as if God is determined not to do for His people what they are not willing to do for themselves. They haven't been faithful in pushing these people out. God is going to say, I'm not either. I'm going to leave them there. So change course all according to his plan. But that these people might learn from this what they couldn't learn any other way. So once we get down to verses 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites and all those nations listed there. And gave their daughters as wives, and their own daughters they gave to sons. They served their God. So, as far as the report guard goes for the testing, it's a big fat F and a big red sharpie. And there's at least three things mentioned here. All three together add up to, uh, really, the theme of the entire book. But if you want to parse them out, they lived among the Canaanites. They were supposed to push out. They intermarried with them, which they were also told not to do. And they served their gods, which was the epitome of their infidelity with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Canaanization, if that's a word, a, a word put the little red squiggly under it. It's not a word can, as far as Microsoft is concerned. But the Israelites looking more like Canaanites. That's the theme of this book. And by the end of the book, there's no distinction between the two. And that really is the lesson. And what God would do about a group of people he created in his own image. Who in one way or another seemed to be bent on rebelling against just about everything he ever said. That's what we're studying. So let's go a little bit further. Look at verse 7. And uh, we've taken note of the test and the bad grade and the report card. Now we look at the first uh, judge. And what's interesting about this account is it's very, it's very bland. There's not a lot of detail uh, compared to the other ones, compared to the one we're going to look at after this one. And it seems as if the purpose for this is that he's trying to give us a scaffold, a pattern uh, by which we interpret the rest of the book. We'll see the same pattern every time a major judge is introduced. And there's seven steps on this pattern, which is basically a cycle. 
And we'll pull them out here in a minute. You'll be able to see them very clearly in this example. Not so clear in the others. As if this is all on purpose. So verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. Say that three times real fast. And it's interesting. That name there, Cushan, seems to be his name. And then there's this description of him. That's the Rishathaim part. And you wouldn't know it if you didn't understand Hebrew. But the way they describe Mesopotamia is the land between two rivers. Or the land of double rivers. And it actually rhymes with this Rishathaim. Which is a way of saying double wickedness. So think about it. These people have been enslaved to this Cushan Rishathaim. We're going to learn in about eight years. Uh, for eight years they've put up with this man of double wickedness from the man of double rivers. The land of double rivers. It's almost like their way they coin their stab at this guy. And the people of Israel served this man of double wickedness from the man of or land of double rivers, eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. We met him last week in chapter 1. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and prevailed over. Here's the fourth time we see this guy's name. So the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. It's almost like they enjoyed that slap against this man with his name so much they used it as often as they could. Four different times. So in these verses, we're introduced to first judge, Othniel. We're introduced last week to uh, who he is and that he was Caleb's son-in-law. Good pedigree. We expect him to be the choice. All the ones from here on out, we wouldn't expect perhaps in a million years, except for Samson, who was called prenatally. Talk to his mother first. This guy's set apart. But for this case, we don't know much other than the locations and some names and details as far as what their names mean. But if we pay attention, there's seven specific steps in a cycle we'll see repeated numerous times before we're at the end of the book. Here they are. In verse 7, we see step number 1, the people rebel. It's, it's the same every single time we read. And we're going to read it again in verse 12 here in a moment. It's a prominent theme over and over. It's the main theme of the book. God's people are drifting away from Him. Then in verse 8, we see step number 2. God is angry about that. Again, rightfully so. The word jealousy is the one that's chosen here. Um... And if we think about it, most of the time we use the word jealous, it's a negative type of word. But there's a positive aspect to that word. If, if a man and woman are married, they've promised themselves to each other, they raise a family, they've got kids, and somewhere along the way, let's say some third party begins to make advances toward one. And let's just say that this person is open to those advances. Outside the, the bounds of that promise between the two of these people. And let's say the other finds out about it. We wouldn't expect that person to say, Well, you win some, you lose some. 
We've had a good run, but I suppose this is over. You'd expect jealousy. It's rightfully theirs to have the affections of the other. They've promised each to each other. So for someone to come in and alienate those affections, that's to be looked at with righteous jealousy. That's what's going on here. God has done so much for these people, we, we wouldn't even have time to get started. And they are not reciprocating. Uh, step number three, oppression by enemies. This is what God said he would do. He's going to leave the people and they're going to have trouble. That's in verse 8. Then in verse 9, step number four, the people cry out. Not necessarily in repentance. That's not even in the words used there. But basically just a, 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 a crying out in misery. Just because it's, it's bad to be them right then. Then step number five in verse nine, salvation through a chosen judge. And this is not on the radar. God didn't promise this at all. He promised to treat them favorably and bless them and multiply them if they obeyed him. They're disobeying him and then he sends a judge. This isn't expected. And churched people in our Western culture can read right over that is, oh, well, isn't that nice? What's for lunch? You don't understand the grace gift this is for people that deserve to be wiped out. Or just, just hit the reset button. God made this whole world and people in his image and they're not behaving. What do we do about it? Because fixing this is going to be a lot more trouble than just creating it all over again. But he determined before the foundations of the world, the New Testament tells us, to save his people. So he's saving them. And this way, through a judge. Then step number six is peace, temporarily. The land has peace, if not the people in it. And then also in verse 11 is step seven. The judge dies. And that's usually when the people forget all that they've learned while he was alive. And the cycle starts again. For example, look at verse 12. Because Othniel was dead in verse 11... And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon. Boy, that would be a lovely name to have in kindergarten. <laughs> the name of Eglon, he's the king of Moab. And the Lord has strengthened him. The Lord's helped him out against Israel because they'd done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 13, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho. Remember they walked around that seven times and the wall fell down. That was theirs. Not anymore. It's gone. The people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. That word served is in here a lot. In the former passage, it was talking about uh, the people served Baals and Asheroth. That's the false gods. And then they had to serve this Cushon Rishathaim. Now they're serving Eglon. And instead of eight years, it's 18 years. So if you look at verse 1 through 3, what was just read, it's easy enough to see steps 1, 2, and 3. One's not as clear as the others. First statement is damning. God's justified in his action. And in verse 15, we pick up with step 4 and 5. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Step 4, 3. The Lord raised up them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, Benjamite. Benjaminite. It's another one you should try saying three times real fast. He's a left-handed man. 
The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab. So they've got another judge. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And that's interesting. Especially the way it's worded in that sentence. Because the name of Benjamin. Do you remember Benjamin? Jacob had 12 sons and then he had Benjamin. He was last. And sometimes people who think their family's big enough name the most recent one Benjamin. And it means we're done. Um, this was the last one. Um, but if you think about the, the meaning of it, Jacob, when he named Benjamin, it means son of my right hand. But this Benjaminite is left-handed. You almost think of a movie, people fighting, hiding the fact that they're not left-handed, and then they switch. But that's what's going on here. And we've got a lot more detail with this man than we saw in the previous already. Um, the fact that he was left-handed is interesting. It's not the way we would say left-handed. The way the Hebrew describes it is that he was not right-handed or unable to be right-handed. Might even mean that there might have been some injury or deformity or some reason why he wasn't able to be right-handed. So he's left-handed. It's considered a handicap. It might have something to do with how this guy was chosen to take the tax or the tribute to the king. Don't worry about him. He can't even fight or arm wrestle. His arm's messed up. Now there's something he knows that they don't. We'll get into this as we move along. So let's pick up in uh, verse 16 and I'll warn you this, this does get rough. If this were a movie, uh, you wouldn't take the kids. But this is scripture. So we're going to read it and then we'll see if we can understand what to do with it. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, that's about 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And then Ehud, when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idol's kneel near Gilgal and said I have a secret message for you O king so what he'd done is he'd left with his delegation at a certain spot which is probably outside the city he lets them go and he returns back because he says he's got a message for the king and he commanded silence that is Eglon the king says silence and all his attendants went out from his presence so it's just the two of them Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So the same thing he said, but this time he's talking about the message being from God. And he arose from his seat, that is, Eglon, the king. And what happens here is that the author seems to slow down. Now this is before they had motion pictures. You have to read this. And it's almost like he's describing this in, in stills. To slow the pace down, this is something that would happen in a flash. But he uses several words to describe it. Verse 21. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. Now in studying for this, I consulted several sources. 
commentaries, some would call them, academic journals and so forth. And one thing they all, without fail pretty much, seem to agree is that this was written in a literary format not unlike a caricature or a cartoon where they're making fun of the enemy in order to give glory to their God. Not that what was said was not accurate or embellished, but the way in which they told the story highlights the deficiencies of the enemy and the adequacy of, of God and the victory, the way that this is put. Uh, in fact, some liberal scholars that don't read much of doubt the historicity of it because of its coarseness. It just doesn't seem to fit. And again, wouldn't make this into a movie because it would need quite a rating. But I, I confess when I read this, as a student, college student, Word of Life, the whole, the whole campus took the same course at the same time. Uh, we got a chuckle out of this, especially what comes next. It gets worse. Look at 24. And when he'd gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Your translation may have covering his feet. That's what we call a euphemism. Same as calling what we've got down the hall the restroom. We don't really rest in there, but that's what we say. It's a euphemism. We know what it means. We just don't say it. Well, that's what's going on here. They waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So now you can probably see how they're, they're poking fun at the weakness on one side. Contributing to the caricature of this man Eglon, the emphasis is here on his heaviness. His name meant young bull or calf, but having lived large on the backs of these people to a, st- a state where his entire life, even what he looks like, is, is the picture of, of decadence. The way they've written this up is that he is described as a fatted calf for the slaughter. That's the way this is set up. The story leaves the reader wondering who, Eglon or his men, were more foolish or stupid to risk uh, privacy with an assassin or his men to not check on him and see what's going on. All the while, the man is escaping. And then that's the other side of the story. As far as Ehud, his strategy was meticulously planned and executed. A lot of emphasis is given on that. He starts off with a custom-made weapon built for concealment. So a shout-out for those conceal-carry guys. This one's left-handed. Have a harder time finding holsters. He then arranges this private meeting with a king, complete with keys, apparently, to lock himself out and to lock Eglon in. Even his expression used, word or message, the Hebrew words was real open. It could mean object or thing or even experience. So get a load of this. You've got Ehud standing there saying to Eglon, Hey, Eglon, I got something for you. And Eglon just naively thinks, Oh, he's got a message from God. It could have been an experience. Boy, that would have been quite the experience. But all these things point to this cartoonish type of reiterating the story. 
Now, verse 26 tells us what happens. Ehud escaped while they delayed. He passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. He was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. Let's see here. Got my pages out of order. And did not allow anyone to pass over. Verse 29. They killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. All strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. So you see the last portions of those cycles. At the end of the story, they're given peace for two generations. 80 years is two two, generations. generations worth and you would think it's said here the land gets the rest not necessarily the people you, with 80 years to spare with no war they could get back to doing what God had told them to do but that's, that's not what happens as far as uh, on a personal level with Ehud uh, we really wouldn't hold him up as an example you know, I, I, I want my child to grow up like the assassin Ehud was. Um, we don't really see any signs of his spirituality or discipline. Not like Othniel. That's the one in the brightest light. And there's not much there. They just get worse from here. In fact, he's actually not unlike what we see on the side of the Canaanites. He's clever, opportunistic, violent. And likely for his own glory. And Samson would... would far outpace everyone in that respect. So the only hero in that story is Yahweh, Jehovah, God. If you go back and read, it's clear. All the credit goes to him entirely. He raised up the deliverer and delivered the enemy into his hand. That much is clear. So we'll say more about a few of these things at the end. we sum all this up. We've got one more verse. Verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. And that's all we've got as far as Shamgar goes. Just one verse. And the steps of those cycle is, are implied here. After him, the way it's written, much of what we saw with Ehud, we apply to Shamgar. A couple of questions pop up. big one is, how... Does one man kill 600 other men? And some scholars would say it's within the realm of the words used to interpret this as he led an army that took out 600 men. But it doesn't say that. I don't have to say that. It could mean that he did this single-handedly. There are other places where things like this happen almost miraculously. It's things Samson would do with a jawbone of a donkey. So to be true to the scriptures, we have to say we don't know, but still it's quite a feat. The next question would be, what in the world is an ox goad? Well, it was a farming implement that a plowman would use, made of hardwood, a long stick, really, between six and eight feet, they said, historically. Usually the end of it would be tipped with iron, and it was pointy. Now, the other end of it had a blade, kind of like a chisel or a spade, and it was about six inches wide. 
So what do you do with it? Well, if you're plowing and the ox stops, you use the sharp end. Make him go. You remember uh, Paul's road to Damascus. Why are you kicking against the pricks, the ox goads? You're making this hard, Paul. And then the other end of it, the blade, was in case it rained and the dirt is sticking to the plow, you can chisel off the dirt. It's a very functional, practical tool. It doesn't say that he made this for the purpose of killing 600 people. But that's what he used it for. So he turns this ordinary thing into a weapon. uh, A weapon of mass destruction, that is. Uh, The implication is that Shamgar was another deliverer like Ehud, minus the details. Therefore sent as an agent of God. His name only adds to the mystery of his character. Son of Anath. Anath was a Canaanite female god. One of the world's god doing working with someone from the other side, perhaps. Maybe he was a convert and he kept the name. We don't know. But it's pointing to the possibility that wasn't even a worshiper of God or perhaps not even an Israelite. So add to this list of things we consider. We know God is for sure saving his people, but the way in which he does this might not be easy to predict or even explain. Why does God do what he does? We don't know. And he's not telling. Not in this passage. So what do we make of all this? With the time we have left. This, I think you would agree, is not one of these uh, go thou and do likewise passages. And we're not going to get any of that out of Judges for the rest of the book. And uh, nor is it the place to try to... You might watch certain pastors struggle with a passage you don't know what to do with. So you just find something that... You can loosely attach to it that amounts to some life skill we all like to have or, or do better at. And that really, you have to ask yourself, is that why this was here? For us to talk about, you know, uh, how to make our own daggers and use them. It's not why this is here. Nor, uh, pro tip, left-handed men make better assassins. That's not what this is for. This, this is tough to get at, but all this speaks toward this idea of a people group. Privileged as they were to be God's chosen people, the apple of his own eye. They can't do any better a job than anybody else on the planet as being fit to be called God's children. That seems to be the, the main thrust of this whole thing. So if we went back through this, what about the failed test scores in 1 through 6? I suppose the best question to ask ourselves regarding this is to what extent have we intermarried with the world around us? That was a big deal back here. God had said, you will be separate from the world. I don't want you intermarrying. Why? Because he didn't want to uh, tarnish the genetic pool? No. Couldn't be anything further from that. It had to do with an arrangement as intimate as a marriage. And anybody who's ever been married knows that when you get married, your family identity that you bring to the table is merged with the family identity of the one you're marrying. And if you don't know this yet, wait till your first Christmas together. You're going to spend it one of two places. If you're close enough, different times of that day. If you're far enough, you switch different years. You work this out through negotiations, right? 
There's other things like, okay, whose meatloaf are you going to eat? <laughs> I've got one I think is better, and I'm not telling. <laughs> My mother's or her mother's. But you see how intermarriage is going to change things? You, Solomon, who had all those wives, it says that they stole his heart away. He forgot who he was. The same is true here. This has nothing to do with interracial marriage. And genetics has everything to do with spirituality. And who's Lord of your life? And he's saying if you intermarry with these people. They're, they're going to dissolve that. So the way we spend our time. And with whom. And what we, we listen to. And what we watch. And what we read. What we value. To have more to do with things that God would describe in those passages, the things that please and glorify Him, or things that really tear down and mitigate, minimize His influence over your life? That'd be a good question. You will tend to take on the characteristics of those you spend time with. That's why parents should care who their kids are hanging out with. My parents cared who I hung out with. What about the cycle of enslavement? Verses 7 through 11. Don't we have our own cycles of bondage? There's a part where everything seems peaceful and great. And then there's a part where we act like an absolute idiot. And then there are complications that come from that choice. And usually we start praying more. God delivers us and we learn something. Only to have everything smooth for a while. This isn't anything new. We've been doing this since the time of Judges. What about Ehud, the knife-making left-handed assassin? We kind of covered that already. It's a rough story for sure. But the passage tells us, I like what one commentator said. It's a different look on something like this. Yahweh is not a white-gloved, standoffish God out of somewhere in the remote left field of the universe who hesitates to get his strong right arm dirty in the yuck of our lives. The God of the Bible does not hold back, waiting for you to pour Clorox and spray Lysol over the affairs of your life before he'll touch it. What if they wrote the story of Wake Chapel and everything was included? Would we feel awkward reading some of that in church like we did this? Or would we leave out that stuff? Some say, this can't be scripture because this is in there. This has to be scripture. No, nobody would include that. They'd want that out of the... I don't want to talk about that. But to think that we, we, we're here to worship the Lord who is gracious enough to reach for us down in the, the place where we actually live... What about Shamgar with his ox goad? Well, I don't, I've kind of, we got one verse I gave up on that. I'm just going to lump him in with the others. And what the others tell us is that neither Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Jephthah, Samson, Deborah, any of these are adequate saviors. Uh, they did not change the hearts of Israel, neither could they release them from their bondage of sin or rip the idols out of their heart. Because sin is not merely an act, something we do. Or it's more like a power that's got us in its clutches. And we're going to need a Savior to shake it off. That's just the way it's going to work. And none of these Saviors are complete. Uh, what we'll use from time to time uh, in this study is, is a description 
from this Old Testament to help us understand what we've been reading and learning in the New Testament. And it's as simple as this. When you talk about salvation, saved from your sins, on the way to heaven, what do you mean by that? Usually somebody wants to ask the question, okay, how? How do I get saved? How do I clean up my act? How do I go to heaven? It's always a how. We'd do better to use the word why. Why are you saved? Apply it to, say, a near-death experience. You're at the beach. You almost drown. You tell somebody, hey, I escaped narrowly, near-death experience, almost drowned. I'm alive. They always ask, how? Right? Nobody ever asks why. But why would actually get to the point quicker. It's, it's one of two options. Either they save themselves or somebody saved them. And nobody's saving themselves in Judges. And nobody's saving themselves in the New Testament. And when Paul tells us, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. If there's any hope of salvation, the why of it is because God saved me when I was unsavable by myself or anybody else. That's what this book is, is telling us and showing us. And if you can't identify with these people who seem to want to do right and do wrong instead then maybe the gospel will make a little more sense. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's already done. This is Titus 3, 3 and 7. Kind of sounds familiar. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. It sounds like judges. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Sounds like a heart transplant rather than a heart makeover. Whom He poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Judges is pointing to. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's what's in this for us. There's where we fit into Judges. Rather than saying, what's useful in Judges to me? No, where do I fit? That's where we fit. In His Father's Day, there's a lot to be learned in this book about God using twisted, backward, flawed people to get some things done from time to time. There was 1 Corinthians 1.26. Again, it's Paul saying, For consider your calling. Sometimes I consider my calling. You should too. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Answer the question, why are you saved why did you wake up saved this morning and didn't mess it up sometime overnight? Why are you here in church? Why do you have a family that's intact? Why do you have anybody that cares about you? Because God in His loving kindness saved us. That's why. We're blessed beyond measure and freed from that cycle of bondage to live identifiably as Christians. But not because of what we brought to the table. Only because of what he's done for us. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. It's a lot to think about. And Lord, we still have things 
that come up as questions and how this fits and how that works. But Lord, may we understand grace. First, that we didn't deserve it. But that it was given to us at great cost to you. The cost of your own son. Lord, may we trust you. Give you our lives. Trust you eternally. Repent of our sins. And be born again. We ask this in your name. Amen.